Welcome to Inside New Mexico. I'm Derek Underhill, and this week I'm going to take you back to June 11th, 2021. Steve Pierce did an in-depth interview about economics with a reporter from London. We'll play you some of that interview this week on Inside New Mexico. Thinking about economics, university economics, academic economics, how useful do you think those kinds of university-based economists are in politics? Not as useful as having owned my own business. The problem with them is they're theoretical and the people who are writing the theories very seldom have been out in the real business world trying to create jobs and trying to to make that economy work. And beginning at the very lowest level with myself having a couple of pigs and a couple of rabbits and 4-H projects, which I was carrying on as business ventures because that's the way it was structured in the, in the program. But picking up that understanding, we were told later my wife and I bought an oil field service business. We did downhole repairs. And so a couple of friends of mine who were in that business came to me after I bought it, not before, I probably wouldn't have done it, but they said, nobody's ever survived from outside. If, if you don't have experience in this area, which I didn't, then you're not going to survive. No one, we've watched them. They were my age and I was in my forties when we bought that and they had never gone to college, but went straight to work. And and they said, we've watched this our whole life, 20 years, and it's never worked. My wife and I made it work. And just sheer out of sheer determination, because they were correct, it was a very difficult field. I didn't know that. I was just looking for a business, and it was one that was available. So went out there and risked everything we had. So that sort of understanding of the economy was far more important than the, the, the collegiate, the, the academic study. And there were useful concepts. I will tell you that my wife and I both went back to school after we bought the business and we got our master's degree. Both of us got an MBA and that was far more useful. We got that while we're running the business. But the theoretical concepts of, of the economy were not nearly as useful in making that business grow and thrive as the uh, MBA that we were getting. Some of the people we've interviewed haven't liked this question, but if you were to try to describe how the economy works, what would you say? It depends on which economy you're talking about. If you're talking about a free market, which you, we, US. It's, it's not so free, but I mean, in, in theory, that's it lies more that direction than the socialist-based economies. So the free market works on the supply and demand principle. That is that people find a need, they solve the need and, and the competition determines how the market prices and it also determines how you succeed. The socialist economies have a far greater influence from the government spending, the government taxing, the government spending. That's far less efficient way for the economy to work. I used to give in my speeches uh, the example of New Zealand. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, they were looking at why they were down in the middle or to the lower end of the world's economies. They did a fairly significant study and they determined that it was because they had government doing things that private businesses should have been doing. And I've been researching that and talked about the guy who is the head of it. I forget his name, but he was the head of the labor department, I think. And they began to cut the programs that should not be government related. And I said that he cut all the way down to himself, which the news report said I'd never met him. He said he would have cut himself, but he would have had trouble explaining that to his wife. And so it was like a very pure test of that idea that government's less efficient than the free market. And he showed up one day and in my office in Washington and said, you've been giving speeches about me. I thought I'd come by and said, okay, hi. So I'm from New Zealand. Oh, come in, sit down. We had a fascinating discussion. And he said, uh, I eventually did cut myself, by the way. And so, and they jumped from the bottom third into the top 
third, within a matter of a couple of years. There's a second significant thing in the government solutions. So you basically, when you get into economic stress in a country or a state, you have basically two policies that move forward. One is you raise taxes. The other is you cut spending. There's a a chart that I've got somewhere in all my economic papers from Congress, but that chart shows that in a scatter diagram, that it's almost 100% failures when states or or countries raise taxes and it's almost 100% success when you start living within your means. Well, that goes all the way back to those early 4-H days that if I'm going to raise this pig, I've got to sell it for more than the feed cost and the more than the, the, the pig cost when I bought it. And so living within those means is a policy that works and it works personally and government, but very few governments have the political courage to say we're going to cut the spending. And did you find that the pressure in the last few years that you were in Congress with the increase in government borrowing, did you find that problematic? I did. I almost always voted against it. Uh, Republicans were in charge most of the time I was there. I'm Republican and I voted almost all the time against the budget, against the major appropriation bill. Your general appropriation will have 12 different segments because you got 12 different departments and each one of those is funded separately. Uh, you've got a lot of single pieces of legislation to fund this or that. And so that wasn't as clear and distinct. But in those major appropriations, I was uh, typically a, a no vote against my leadership. And yes, they did talk about me not being a very good team player. And I said, well, I didn't come up here on a team. I came here to do the right thing. And so so we had that uh, philosophical dispute, I guess you could talk. <laughs> but yes, that was uh, became very tedious. And do you see any prospect for those like yourself who want to cut spending? Do you see any immediate prospect of that. Well, the, uh, yeah, I, t- I tell people it's like gravity. Gravity will eventually win, no matter who or what you are. Well, one of the most significant make-believes in Washington, and, and I'm sure uh, nations around the world, is when numbers begin to get too embarrassing, then they simply quit counting them. Mm-hmm. So it's typically said that uh, the U.S. is in debt 15, 18, 20 trillion dollars. But the truth is that Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid have all been out of that debt because they're so overwhelming. If you were to put them back in, then they're probably a hundred trillion by themselves. And so you can say that we are not a solvent economy right now. And very few of the countries are solvent economies. Almost all have spent more than they have and, and that they can ever make. And so occasionally you will have these great shifts in the in the value of money and, and that's going on right now. The inflation here in the US is beginning to skyrocket because of those five, six trillion dollars that were handed out. And, and it's a little bit like candy. It was it was nice for the people getting the checks, but the penalties as soon as those checks quit coming in, we just uh, typically, my wife and I would go to lunch and we'd spend uh, 20, 20 bucks for lunch. Uh, yesterday we went out and it was $44. A friend of mine is in the restaurant business. The cooking oil, for instance, has gone up from $16 a month ago to over $100 now. Chicken has doubled in its prices and beef has likewise doubled. This is the wholesale level to the guy running the restaurant. As you eat up your disposable income, then you're not going to be out there doing many of the other things. You're going to pay for your kid's school. You're going to pay for your health insurance and your rent first. And so you're going to see this price increase, this wage price spiral, and it gets faster the further you get into an inflationary time. 
We'll be back with more Inside New Mexico in just a moment. National Guard and Reserve members are true leaders, both in the military and in the workplace. They are highly skilled and get the job done every day. Employer support of the Guard and Reserve, ESGR, can help you recruit top-notch service members to your workforce. Hiring Guard and Reserve members is good for your business and good for your community. Visit esgr.mil employers to learn more. Welcome back to Inside New Mexico. We continue now with the chairman of our Republican Party of New Mexico, Steve Pierce, talking economics with a reporter in London. How do you think voters see the economy? The district I represented was 52% Hispanic. It was 60% uh, minority overall. It was the second poorest district in the entire United States. The number of college degrees is low percent compared to the rest of the country. So given that background, I would go into my town halls and I'd get basically masters to PhD level town halls on economics, but I would also be explaining it the way that you and I are talking here and you could see their heads shaking yes. So that's the foundation for what my opinion is that I think people, number one, just wanna be able to raise their family, send their kids to school and to church or whatever their value system is, to have some enjoyment of life, to have a place to live, and to have their kids live a better life than they've lived. That's the basic desire. And when that's going pretty smoothly, then people really don't ask a lot of questions about the economy. When it's going badly, they ask a lot of questions about the economy. And there are a lot of theories and there are a lot of people willing to talk, the, the talking heads on TV very rarely know the issues, especially here in America. Europeans are, are somewhat different. They're journalists major in a specific area, and then they become journalists after they know the area. In the U.S., they major in journalism first, so they know how to write, they know how to speak, they know what to do, they don't know what to say. And so always there's this big gap between reality and the truth. And so in my town halls, I think the people in the second district of Mexico understood pretty well the economic climate, the economic questions and they understood my reasons. And so this district, uh, I'm Republican, and this district is 34% Republican. I would win with basically 60% of the votes because I was going into areas that typically were ignored, very, very poor income, some areas that probably 10, 11,000 a year compared to an average across the U.S., maybe 50,000 a year, places that had just running open sewer into the to the backyards, not any infrastructure in these little communities. And so I'd go into those areas and, and people would understand why things are the way they are. And they knew that I would fight for jobs here in the state, which we always did. And so it depends on how much the elected officials are out there explaining these situations. Because the explanations that are coming from TV and the internet are not always going to be very good or discernible. So I think that those areas where the representatives are truly out talking to the people, then, then I think they probably understand. Otherwise, I think the understanding is limited. And do you think that in general, voters underestimate or overestimate what government can do economically? Uh, 
I, th- I think that uh, that is a little bit like a pendulum that swings, and, and that swing is a little bit based on the current and economic climate, but also the way it's being pitched. So things really began to stabilize under Trump, but the pitch on TV was very anti-Trump. And so people were a little confused, but then they began to see that, okay, this tax cut really did, but $200 a month more in my paycheck. Now in Washington, they diminished that, but in a state like mine, where your average income was 3000 a month, $200, and part of that then would go for taxes. You get a $200 a month bump. That's the difference between paying the rent that month and not. And so it was a huge impact. And people began to come up and say, you know, I'm looking at the back of my check. It's it's less money is taken out. Is that that Trump tax deal? And I said, yeah, it's Trump tax deal. Okay. Well, I mean, initially the Hispanic voters, again, this district was 52% Hispanic. They hated Trump in 2016, but that began to shift pretty radically in 2018, roughly about halfway through, they began to shake their heads yes instead of shaking their heads no. So people began to understand. And so I think that people underestimate the power of government to do harm. I think they also believe that the government you got about half the population right now that believes the government can continue to give out the free money, that we can continue to run pension systems that are basically bankrupt because they're paying out more than they can economically or actuarially sustain. And so those are truths that are about to hit us. One of the, the early Biden stimulus bills was mostly to bail out those pension funds. For instance, we have the top pension fund manager from California. They have 13 major pensions. And the estimate is that those pensions collectively are $5 trillion in the hole. So you can imagine that that pension question is, is laying out there ready to explode at any moment. And do you think COVID is going to change the way voters see the economy? I mean, you, you've said that you think the pendulum will swing back. You don't think that, for example, the stimulus checks will make people continue to want more government. Yeah, they will continue to want more free money, but it is at great expense to the rest of the world, first of all, in losing the value of the money that you have lent to us. Secondly, the taxpayers will eventually have to pick up the burden. So that G7 uh, just last week approved basically a worldwide minimum corporate tax, and that's going to be pretty destructive. And then they're trying to to come up with a minimum tax worldwide so that countries can't appeal to companies to move in 20 years ago, whenever Ireland really had a great influx of companies because they cut their tax rate and companies flocked there. They began to then exert regulations and do things when the prosperity came that uh, they thought they could and the companies left. So my brother-in-law came there at the beginning of that period to build a plant for Hughes Tool Company. And then 20 years later, he went to disassemble that plant as they said, okay, Ireland is no longer a good place for us to do business. And so that G7 summit that's occurring right now is trying to stop countries from being able to compete, which is going to be not good for your average wage earner. So yes, that pendulum will swing based on voters' current standing, whatever the that current means, whatever time that is. So that Arab Spring that happened four four or five years ago, it was pitched as being political. The truth is, and we were watching pretty closely the reports coming in from the embassies and things, the truth is that people were in the streets rioting because they were hungry. So hunger is probably the greatest destabilizing effect for any political system. We saw a lot of broken supply chains 
And I think we're going to see a lot more of that as the economic truths continue to get further from the truth of the, as, as they're left in the background. Right now in America, I was just talking to a car dealer yesterday that can't get new cars because the supply chain for chips is interrupted and each car has hundreds of chips. And so no new cars being manufactured because they've got no chips as you can't manufacture cars and you can't sell them. So again, if they can't get that corrected, you're going to see people being laid off because there's nothing to do. So supply chains of food is going to be really dramatic. And we've, we've seen some interruptions in those supply chains. So I think the world is going to experience great pain over these problems. And you're going to have politicians claiming that the answer is more government and more taxes and we could just got to hammer people harder. And the truth is the other direction. It'll be interesting how it plays out worldwide, but here in the U.S. also. That was the chairman of our Republican Party of New Mexico, Steve Pierce, talking economics with a reporter in London. We've got more of Inside New Mexico coming up in a moment. Hope you'll stay with us. Attention, New Mexico veterans. If you were honorably discharged from the U.S. Armed Forces, you've earned state and federal benefits, and the New Mexico Department of Veteran Services is standing by to assist you. State benefits include a veteran's property tax exemption, education and training, and transportation services. We can also assist with claims for federal VA benefits. The state of New Mexico and this radio station thank you for your service. More information at nmveterans.org or 1-866-433-8387. Welcome back to Inside New Mexico. Last month, the Republican Party of New Mexico had their Operation Freedom to raise optimism and find meaningful solutions for New Mexico, focusing on key issues such as the economy, education, and jobs. One of the speakers at this event was Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota. South Dakota has a population of about 900,000 people. New Mexico has a population of about 2 million, so we're about double the size. As of June 23rd, South Dakota had 124,000 cases of COVID-19 and 2,027 deaths. New Mexico, with about double the population, as we said, had 205,000 cases with 4,332 deaths. So it's about the same as New Mexico adjusting for population. The difference is South Dakota never closed the state, never shut down businesses. Here's their governor, Kristi Noem. Let's be honest, you guys had no idea who I was a year ago, did you? No. The only reason you know who I am today is because the liberals have been busy kicking me in the head for all the decisions that I've made for my people in South Dakota. But I want you to know something. My people are happy, and they're happy because they're free. So as we got our first cases in March, you know, I'm just gonna be honest. I think I did what every other governor in this country did. I studied the virus. I looked as it hit other countries, hit other states, talked to my health experts, looked at the data. But I think that what happened differently was that I took it a step further. I consulted with my general, my counsels. I consulted with my attorneys, my constitutional authorities. I really wanted to understand what authority I had as a governor and what authority I didn't have as a governor. Because I understand that when a leader oversteps their authority in a time of crisis, that that's when we break this country. That that's when we break this country. And I didn't want to be the governor to do that. 
So for instance, in South Dakota, I stood up in front of my people and I told them, I'm gonna give you all the information that I have. I'm gonna make sure that we have hospital capacity to take care of those individuals who would need it should they get sick. But I'm also gonna trust you. I'm gonna let you use personal responsibility to make the best decisions for your family's health, but I'm also gonna give you the flexibility to put food on the table and a roof over your head. And my people appreciated that. They liked the fact that they had a governor a leader that respected them, that respected them enough to make those decisions. So for instance, in South Dakota, we never once closed a single business in our entire state. In fact, I didn't even define what an essential business was because I don't believe governors have the authority to tell you that your business is an essential. issue a shelter in place. I never once mandated anything like masks. We just got through it together. And I had press conferences every single day to communicate to people what they could do, the best information that we had, and how we were going to cooperate to let them make decisions that worked for them, their families, and their businesses. So we did very well as a state. Yes, people got sick. But I was honest with people. The science of the virus tells us that we can't stop this. We can slow it down and take care of people and get through it together. Now, we did that and got through it just like every other state, but I'll tell you the story of what's going on in South Dakota right now. We have the least amount of hours lost at jobs by employees in the entire country. The least amount of wages lost by any employee in the country. The least amount of businesses that have closed in the country are in our state. We have the lowest unemployment rate in the nation. It's at 2.9%. In fact, when the president offered us those elevated unemployment benefits, I was the only state, we were the only state in the nation to tell the president, thank you for the flexibility, but we don't need them. Our people want to work. What's interesting to me is that program, uh, as soon as I did that, even within one week, within one week we cut our unemployment claims in half. Which, with the people that were sitting on the sidelines, that weren't working, decided I guess it's time to go back to work, and they did. Now today, we have the fastest growing economy in the nation. The next closest is Texas, with 7.5% GDP. South Dakota's today is 9.9%. thousands and thousands and thousands of people to South Dakota. And they're moving to South Dakota because they want a government that respects them. They want their kids in classrooms, they want to be able to keep their business in place, and they want a leader that doesn't decide to hurt them because they're overstepping their authority. I uh, could triple the size of my economic development department right now and I wouldn't be able to answer the phone for all the businesses and companies that are coming to our state. It has been a testimony to the fact that we for years as a Republican Party have talked about what we believe. In South Dakota, we just did it. We just did it and we're proving that it does create So I wanted to share with you a, a couple of thoughts. Leadership has consequences. And we just have to look from state to state to see the difference in the consequences of Democrat leadership 
and Republican leadership. You've been living under Democrat leadership. I know your governor. I served in Congress with her. She was mouthy back then, too. <laughs> she was. And she has been making bad decisions for you, and you are living with the consequences. I will help you work to get better leadership. I will help you. in 2020 by how the media used fear to control people, weren't you? How the left used fear to promote their agenda. And I watched people give up their freedoms like I never believed. They gave up their freedom of assembly, their freedom of religion, their freedom of speech. Now they're coming after our right to bear arms. It's unprecedented what we're seeing in this country. When Steve and I, and Steve's such a dear friend of mine, thank you for supporting him. He works day and night. He's one of the few normal people that I met in Washington, D.C. So thank you for sending him. When I served in the House just a few short years ago, I knew that I served in that House with 435 members. I knew that probably 60 or 70 of them were socialists. I knew they were. We'd have private conversations. We'd talk in the hallways. And I, they told me what they believed and what they really adhered to in their philosophy. But they never would have said it out loud. They wouldn't have said it because they knew that it was going to be political baggage for them. Look at how far it has come in just a few short years. Look how they proudly stand up now and embrace socialist policies. How they embrace uh, countries that have kept people in bondage and in poverty for generations. This is why we need you, and this is why we need your help. We need to make sure that we have good people who all step up and do their part and embrace and tell the story of what Republicans stand for. After hearing what the governor of South Dakota, Kristi Noem, had to say, you may be interested in getting involved with the Republican Party here in New Mexico. You can do that by going to the website at www.gopnm.org. The party has a Facebook page and a Twitter account. The handle is at New Mexico GOP. If you'd like to talk to somebody, call the Republican Party headquarters at 505-298-3662. That's 505-298-3662. I'm Derek Underhill. Thanks for listening. I'll look forward to meeting with you again next week right here on Inside New Mexico.